welcome to Let's Talk Family Law, a podcast focusing on all aspects of family law. Now to our attorneys to tell you about today's featured episode. Hello and welcome to season one, episode four of uh, Weber Gallagher's Let's Talk Family Law. And today, We've decided in our meetings about uh, uh, law firm marketing and family law marketing that a market that seems to be overlooked is, is, is men. And uh, men are 50% of the people that are involved in, uh, in family law situations. So uh, we thought that, uh, that we would direct today's podcast to uh, all the men listening who are facing uh, situations involving the, uh, the breakup of the relationship. Uh, my name is Skip Persick. I'm a partner in the Norristown office of uh, Weber Gallagher, and I specialize in the area of family law. And uh, joining me today is uh, uh, John Zorzola. He is also a partner in the Norristown office. And uh, 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 we are you know, basically two guys, and we're going to call this family law man-to-man is what we're going to call this one today. And uh, John, John, John's, John's a real man. He grew up in, uh, in the Manioc section of Philadelphia. He's a former Marine, and uh, he, he's, 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 a, he's a manly man. I'm a, a wimp from the suburbs, so uh, I'll try to slide by as best I can. I, I agree, and I don't agree, so, but that's fine. <laughs> but thanks, Skip. I appreciate that. Uh, uh, John, it seems to me that when I sit down with a guy relative to any sort of a family law situation, the one that is the most, the, the, the situation that is the most uh, confusing and the one where guys totally feel like uh, they are uh, totally behind the eight ball is relative to uh, the Pennsylvania's Protection from Abuse Act. Sure. Um, uh, what do you understand the Protection from Abuse Act to be and what's it all about? Well, the Protection from Abuse Act um, is it, it's Pennsylvania's version of a, a restraining order. I think literally the rest of the country calls them restraining orders. In Pennsylvania, they're called protection from abuse orders, but they are what they are. They're restraining orders. Um, and I think, you know, it's probably it's reasonable for when a, uh, when a man comes in and says that he's either facing one of these. I mean, a lot of times when we get these, I think you'll agree, Skip, is someone calls or someone comes in and they literally have the paperwork that was filed against them in their hand. And of course, they have a million questions. They may be out of their house at that point. Um, they may have a hearing coming up in two days. Um, the statute, um, if you read the statute, uh, calls for a hearing within 10 days. And really, the, the protection from abuse statute is one that was put in, obviously, to uh, help remedy the situation, um, which is an epidemic of domestic violence. And it calls for some very quick remedies. Um, so for instance, um, if someone goes to court or goes to their local judge, you know, their magisterial district judge, where you pay parking tickets and things like that, or after hours, you can get one of these protection from abuse orders just based on the allegations that were made in the petition. So just as a completely hypothetical situation, um, a man and a woman have a fight. Um, the man or the woman, in this case, will we'll use the woman. The woman says, I'm calling the police. The police arrive. Um, the woman tells the police that you know he raised his hand to me or he hit me or he threatened me or what have you, the police will nine times out of 10 do whatever they need to do to remedy the situation. Fellas, sometimes they'll, they'll tell you to leave um, and then they'll counsel the woman to file a protection from abuse order and they'll tell her where to go. Again, just based upon what she says in her petition, truth, not truth, um, stretching the facts, um, she may indeed get an order that puts you out of the house or prevents you from contacting her or prevents you from seeing your children until you can get to court within that 10 days. So again, Skip, when people come to see us, it's usually a bad time. Um, the person has a piece of paper in their hand and their whole life has changed. Would you agree with that statement? I, I would agree with that, John. And, and I think that uh, uh, you got to take this from the perspective of the police officer to a certain degree, which is that police officer gets a 911 call or the station gets a 911 call and sends an officer over there. 
and uh, uh, the officer doesn't know what he's going to walk into. Uh, he sees a woman who's probably crying, and uh, she may have uh, a bruise or a mark on her in some way, shape, or form, and there's a guy standing there, and his job is to try to keep the situation as calm as possible. So. Uh, usually they're going to ask the guy to, to, to step outside and they're going to separate the two parties and try to, to, to talk to the parties and, and figure out what it is that's going on. And uh, uh, honestly, if I was a police officer, I would err on the side of caution and I would try to get that guy out of the house at least for the night or for the afternoon or whatever the situation is. So um, guys may feel that the situation is, is or the, the deck is stacked against them in these situations, but as I said, take it from the perspective of the police officer or take it from the perspective of the magisterial justice or the judge that's hearing this story and um, you know they're looking at it from the perspective of what's the worst thing that can happen. Well, the worst thing that can happen is that I kick a guy out of his house or his apartment for a couple of days. So so um, uh, they may very well be inclined to enter one of these orders uh, uh, based on what the woman says and uh, kind of take the woman's word for it, uh, even though it may not be 100% truth. John, why is the Protection from Abuse Act so powerful? Well, I, I alluded to that earlier because it, it really provides an, an, what we would call an immediate remedy to whatever is alleged to have been happening. So again, in after the police incident, um, sometimes the woman, I think we're gonna stick with that maybe for this podcast, we'll use the man-woman dynamic just because we are talking about uh, the perception or sometimes the reality of the laws being skewed or used against, against the man. So we'll go with that, I think. Um, but again, the reason it's so powerful is because of the fact that it is, it's an immediate remedy and it doesn't require some giant trial, at least in the beginning, to get the woman um, what she wants, get the man thrown out of the house, um, uh, prevented from uh, talking to her, texting her, calling her, having someone else get a message to her on her behalf. These are all the things that are that are not okay um, when once you have a protection from abuse order filed against you. But this is where, after that immediate remedy and after all the bad things have happened, is when, when you sit down and talk to a lawyer, you start to really pull the petition apart and you start to figure out, well, um, this is happening to you right now, you're out of your house, but I need to let you know that this isn't permanent, maybe. You, you have the right to a trial, and when we go to a trial, they're gonna get out the book and they're gonna take a look at the law and they're gonna take a look at the facts of your case. And really the biggest thing to do, the biggest thing I do anyway when we, when we look at the petition uh, for protection from abuse and we read what the woman has alleged to have occurred, you basically go to the definition section of the Protection from Abuse Act, which really defines what abuse is. Again, you can't get a protection from abuse order to stick unless the court finds that there was abuse. So very quickly what I'll do is I'll literally read the definition of abuse from the Protection from Abuse Act. After we do that and then we read the allegations and the petitions again, we want to take a look at and see is this really abuse? Um, could it be found by a judge to be abuse? Remember the judge is the one that gets to decide whether it's abuse or not. Um, did these things really happen or is the truth being stretched a little bit to try to, to shoehorn the allegations into the definition of abuse. So really quickly, um, abuse is basically attempting to cause or intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly call, causing bodily injury, serious bodily injury, rape, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, sexual assault, and uh, a few more uh, assaults. Um, number two, placing another in reasonable fear of imminent serious bodily injury. Number three, the infliction of false imprisonment. Four, physically or sexually abusing minor children. Or five, which is really, you're gonna think harassment, knowingly engaging in a course of conduct or repeatedly committing acts toward another person, including following the person, um, and circumstances which place another person in reasonable fear of imminent serious bodily injury or bodily injury. So the interesting thing about that is literally 90% of the petitions we get, uh, maybe not that high, don't actually or don't have to have actual proof of abuse in the form of the person hitting the other person. 
Um, really, a lot of these cases turn on whatever what was said. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to beat you up when I see you. Um, push me again and you'll see what happens, things like that. A lot of these cases turn on what, what your facts are and whether they placed you, the woman in this situation, in reasonable fear of imminent serious bodily injury. And a lot of times that's what the trial will come down to. Now, if you have a, a case where a police officer comes in to testify and says, I walked in and the gentleman's hand was broken and the woman's nose was bleeding profusely and she had scratches, that's a different case. I mean, that's probably a pretty obvious case of abuse. But a lot of times you'll have testimony that he hit me. Um, and sometimes the police, if they're good, they'll have in their report, no visible remarks were, were seen. Uh, woman alleges that the other person hit her. So a lot of times these cases are gonna turn on what was said or what was alleged and whether that particular act placed the person in reasonable fear of imminent serious bodily injury. Now saying that, there is case law out there, cases that have been decided and have been taken up on appeal where the pretending to throw a punch or feigning a punch, cocking your hand back and says, you know, uh, you're gonna get this. That's actually been found to place another in, in reasonable fear of imminent serious bodily injury. So depending on the judge, it doesn't take much at times to have your situation reviewed and have the protection from abuse order stick. And maybe Skip can talk about what that means with it, with it sticking. Well, following up on what you said, John, a lot of this is, is specific to the judge. I think yes. some judges interpret what abuse is a little bit more liberally than others. And, and I've found that as a judge sits on the bench longer and longer in terms of years, uh, their definition of abuse kind of kind of gets a little higher. The standard of proof becomes higher. That I think that it, uh, young judges or judges that aren't that seasoned and haven't been sitting on the bench for all that long, they, uh, they, they as I said, they are on the side of caution right. and uh, uh, they're more inclined to give the order out. Now, what concerns me and I think what concerns uh, a lot of guys is that there is the possibility for abuse of the Protection from Abuse Act right. in that uh, the Protection from Abuse Act can give uh, in our situation or in the scenario that we're running can give a, uh, a, 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 a woman a lot of power. It can kick a guy out of his house or out of his apartment. It can give a guy, uh, put him behind the eight ball relative to, uh, to custody of his children. There are also provisions in there that uh, if a guy is a hunter or a guy has a gun, he has to surrender his firearms. And there's a lot of things that can happen to a guy uh, relative to a Protection from Abuse Act uh, petition, and uh, uh, that's that's of concern to us as lawyers. It's a concern of us as officers of the court and the court system, and it's also uh, uh, it, it can set up for a a very contentious divorce or a, a separation situation when uh, uh, something is kind of. Uh, amplified or uh, uh, trumped up, if you will, uh, in, in terms of a protection review petition. You have anything on that? I, I, I really agree with that. Um, and like I said, we were just, we, we really talked about how the act is applied, but I think at the same time, when, when you come into our office and you talk to us, we're looking for those abuses as well. Um, sometimes, like, like Skip alluded to, um, you could be, you know, talking about divorce, you might be talking about getting your property divided and how you're going to separate. And all of a sudden, a protection from abuse situation comes on and your entire family law case sort of is derailed. Um, it's taken over by the protection from abuse case or the custody case. And it, it's, Skip said this, it, is, it shouldn't be understated that a protection from abuse filing or an order can really be a sea change with respect to an otherwise normal custody case where a man and a woman are going into court and going to be talking about what's in the best interest of their children, how many days am I going to get, am I going to get 50-50 custody, all those things. When that PFA is filed, really a lot of that stuff can go out the window. Um, it can really take over a custody case. Um, um, so it's important to, to be able to, to handle these things as they come up and then look at the entire family law case uh, as a whole. 
I guess overall advice for guys is that uh, that you know watch out when you have a PFA situation uh, in front of you because you really have a lot to lose. John talked about a hearing or a trial in front of a judge and realize that if you are found to have abused uh, your partner, uh, there are certain things that can that can happen against you, negative repercussions, such as a finding of abuse is a factor relative to child custody. Uh, I've talked about being excluded from your home. You can be excluded from your home and, and ordered to stay away from your partner for uh, up to three years, which is you know, certainly a considerable amount of time. Uh, so my advice to guys is that uh, if you are in a, a, a relationship that's gotten into a rocky phase, uh, walk away. Uh, if you uh, if you uh, if you are faced with a, a, a situation where things seem to be escalating, go outside for a walk. Go for a drive. Go, you know, spend the night at a friend's house or your parents or whatever. Just leave the house or apartment until things calm down. Because as I said, you have a, uh, you have a lot to lose, and uh, you don't want to you know take a, a, an overly macho attitude towards things, and uh, you end up putting yourself behind the eight ball for conceivably years down the road. Um, we have made mention of the fact that uh, that in our scenario, uh, it's a, a guy is faced with a PFA filed by a woman. I have had situations where guys have. Uh, have gotten PFAs against their wives. Me I had a, too. I've had a guy. I had a guy one time who uh, his wife threw a shoe at him and hit him in the eye, and he walked into the court with a black eye. And guess what? He didn't have any problem getting a protection from abuse order. Also, I have had same-sex couples. I had uh, one guy set the uh, the other guy's bed on fire in in their house. So uh, it it cuts across the board. It may be that. In actuality, most of these uh, petitions and orders are awarded to women, but uh, it does cut uh, both ways. Yeah, uh, I, I, I was just going to say on that too, because yeah, when when you think about all the players involved, the woman is calling the police, the police are showing up. Um, it's it, it definitely can seem like it's weighted against the man at times, and I mean, I've certainly had more PFA cases where the woman is the plaintiff, the one filing. But the law is applied evenly, and I have had cases like Skip has where the where the man is the one seeking the PFA. But just like Skip said, you really do have to watch. This is serious business. Okay, John. The the, the next thing, and kind of a corollary and a little spin-off of this, is that uh, guys always seem to be concerned about number two after a PFA. They're concerned about their kids, and uh, you know they 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 feel like the the entire court system is is against them when it comes to their kids and uh, uh, that it's presumed that mom's going to get the kids and that they're going to be, you know, on the outside looking in for, uh, you know, somebody that they've, uh, a, a little kid that they've, you know, done everything with and, and, and played with and, and, you know, worked hard to, to try to raise and sure. make some money to uh, make sure that the kid has a, has a better life. Um, uh, relative to child custody, are there any presumptions in the law relative to who gets custody one way or the other? Well, it's interesting that you say that because, I mean, when in an interview, when you first come to see us, many, many men say, well, doesn't the woman just always get the kids and what, what do I get every other weekend or something like that? I think um, we think there's a presumption and certainly um, if you were talking to your friend about his case and sort of what happened, it can seem like there's a presumption. There's actually no presumption, <clears throat> which is to say that there's a law that says the women get more time than the man. There's nothing in the law that says that. Now, there are lobbying groups, we understand, at different state levels. And in, in fact, in Pennsylvania, there might be a bill pending that says that um, there, there can be a presumption of 50-50 custody, which would cut both ways, okay? But in terms of what we're talking about today, there's really no presumption that the woman gets custody of the kids. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen, though. Um, we could be looking at a couple hundred years of the family dynamic um, as sort of um, 
trickling down to it seeming like the woman automatically gets the kids. Um, but technically, the answer is no. There's no presumption that says the woman walks away with the kids. Conversely, there's no presumption the other way. There's no <laughs> presumption that uh, it's going to be a 50-50 custody arrangement where it's week on, week off, or two days, two days, every other weekend, or whatever. There's no presumption one way or the other. Right. And um, kind of, uh, I think that uh, that that our court system here in Pennsylvania is uh, e evolving, if you will, to the point where you know, you're not really seeing the every other weekend, one dinner a week dad uh, anymore anyway. You're kind of seeing more of dads are getting overnights during the week, more dads are getting 50-50 arrangements, there are dads in certain situations that are getting primary physical custody of their children. Right. Uh, I think that uh, that that uh, as I said, is that as the workforce has evolved and changed, uh, the court system is kind of lags behind a little bit, but it is catching up with the fact that uh, people's lives are different than the, you know, 1950s Ozzie and Harriet kind of view of the world where mom stays home and raises the kids and dad goes out and works, wouldn't you? I, I completely agree with that, but I will say this, um, when the rubber reads the road and you get into court and you're having your custody trial, and boy, there's a whole lot of um, time between when the custody is filed and you actually get sometimes to see a judge about what's going to happen. There's a lot of steps. And if anybody's been involved in the system, you know that. But when the rubber meets the road, really the law says, um, and also I think the judges will take a look at the case and see really what the standard where the best interests of the child apply. And whether you're a man, <clears throat> especially if you're a man, or you're a woman, those facts that the judges want to hear, those things that you might consider should go to who gets what, who gets overnights, who gets you know, the time with the child, really are going to be important. So um, if you're a guy, and this is very anecdotal, I would say that you probably want to have a history of um, spending time with the children. You want to have a history of maybe cooking for the children. You want to have a history of knowing uh, who the children's teachers are, <clears throat> who their doctors are, and maybe have a history of going to parent-teacher conferences and taking the kids to the doctors. Maybe a history of staying home sometimes when they're sick. Um, and if you don't have all this stuff, um, sometimes the judges can look at it and say, all right, I understand what's going on here. The guy goes out to work. And even though the woman may work, she's the one that's filling in all the gaps and being the traditional mother. Um, this isn't to say you should do these things in, in anticipation of a custody case. This is merely uh, providing one ex uh, explanation, maybe, as to why it looks like the woman is the one that always walks away with the kids. Because a lot of times, they're the ones that have those facts on their side. What happens when the child get, gets sick? Well, I call out. My husband can't call out. He has to go to work. Um, and or I've had cases where the, the, the gentleman's on the stand and I say, you know, well, what is what's the pediatrician's name? Oh, I don't know. Uh, didn't we change last year or something like that? Really, the, the a custody case is a fact sensitive inquiry that looks to see where the best interests of the children lie and where they should be, frankly. Um, and I think from looking at it from a father's rights perspective, I would say that fathers have a whole lot of rights, but if you don't have the facts, you could find out that this this law that's seemingly neutral could get applied against you pretty easily. Uh, following up on that, a bit of advice for the dads that are listening, uh, be realistic. Uh, one time I had a cardiologist who had five kids ages 10 and under. He felt that his wife was mentally ill and that, uh, that he would be able to uh, be the primary uh, physical custodian for those five kids. And uh, uh, I said to him, I said, Ken, you work 75, 80 hours a week. Right. How are you going to do this? And he's like, well, I'm going to hire an au pair and she's going to do this and she's going to do that. And I said, well, wait a second, uh, any fact finder, any judge or custody conciliator or whatever, is going to say, well, it's going to be better for these kids to be with their parent, their mom, than it is with some third party. So uh, I guess my point is, is, is be realistic. After I had like a conversation with that guy, and I've had this with other dads, which is that you sit there and you're like, 
can you pull it off? Right. Exactly. And, and you know, if you can pull it off, fine, more power to you. You know, there's two guys sitting in this room right now that are happy to represent you and happy to present that case to any sort of a judge and say, you know, look, this guy is concerned. He's got the time. He can do it. But as I said, if you have a demanding job and you're and you're you're working like crazy, uh, how are you going to be able to get the homework done and get the meals prepared and get everybody off to school on time with all of their books and assignments and everything else that they need to get there? It's it's being a a primary custodial parent is a lot of work. And as I said, just realize that uh, that that. What, what, be careful of what you wish for because you might just get it. It's a big job, yeah. They're, and the judges are going to look at that too, the conciliators, the masters. <clears throat> they're, you know, they're going to listen to you if you say that, you know, uh, you know, I didn't do a lot of this stuff, but, you know, we're separated now. This is our new situation, and I'm going to step up. They may give you a chance. They may not give you a chance. The good news is this. Um, for the gentleman who really is going to step up, and be uh, you know, a 50% parent or a primary parent, the important takeaway here is that custody orders are modifiable, okay? And a lot of times, I know, Skip, you're going to agree with this one, we work with men and women for some years, not that you're wanting to be running back and forth to court all the time, but you know, if, if, if you're separated and this is your new situation and you got an order that says you can see your kids every other weekend and for Wednesday for two hours for dinner or something like that, you know, you step up. That doesn't mean that in a year or two years we revisit the situation as your schedule changes, as the children's schedules change, you know, and nothing's going to take the place of the facts and the history of the case. And when you maybe came into court the first time, you said, well, I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to hire a babysitter and I'm going to change my schedule and I'm going to be home at 3.30. You know, if you did it, you're in that much better shape. John, following up on that, and, and listeners, what John said is before is that the standard in all of this is the best interest of your children. It's not what's best for you, nor what's best for uh, the mother of the children. It's what's best for the kids. And uh, the needs of a four-year-old and a six-year-old are a lot different than the needs of a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old. So, you know, think things are going to change over time. And, uh, and just realize that. And, uh, uh, you know, if you're the dad that you have been distracted by work or whatever, and, uh, you know, you do have the opportunity to revise your work schedule and you can spend more time with your kids, you know, by all means, seek a modification down the road. Um, what we have said that, that the court system as best as can is, uh, is, 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 is gender neutral. But uh, uh, I have felt that, uh, that Mr. Moms, guys who stay home with the kids, they are treated with a bit of skepticism. So yeah. you, you do have to, if you're in that situation, you do have to you know, document what you've done and things like that. Because I've had, I've had Mr. Moms, and I've also had guys who said they were Mr. Moms, but the kids went to daycare every day. So it's kind of tough to argue that you're the primary caregiver when mom goes off to work, drops the kids off at, uh, at daycare, and, uh, and picks them up at 4 or 5 in the afternoon, and you've been home all day. So, you know, that, 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 that's, that's, that's a tough one. John, is there a connection between child custody and child support? There is, um, and it, it really comes down to percentages. Um, just very quickly, um, the person who doesn't have primary physical custody of the child is going to pay child support. The person who has 50-50 of the custody of the children or the child and makes more than the other person is going to pay child support. So I'm going to repeat that one more time. If you don't have primary physical custody, you're paying child support. If you have 50-50 custody and you make more than the other parent, you're going to pay child support. Okay? So that's the connection, at least the most basic connection, is to take a look at um, primary physical custody. Um, if you have primary, it's presumed, we talk about presumptions, that you know, you're the one spending most of the resources on the child, or you're the one that's responsible, I guess I would say, for um, spending on the child 
and supporting the child because the child's with you more. And literally, it could be one day more, okay? And this is another thing that as lawyers, Skip and I always get involved in. We literally draw schedules um, or pull out calendars and we take a look at these things. But in terms of child support and the way it's ordered pursuant to the guidelines, um, there are some opportunities to get a lower child support order beginning at 40% custody. Um, and 40% custody, could you could literally do it in a monthly period or you could map out all the days of the year that you have. It could literally say it in the child support order. Um, and then there's a bigger break at 50-50 custody. Okay, so the guidelines give a, and I don't ask us how it's figured out, but there's a formula. Um, and when it's applied, you go to a grid and you see what the, uh, the amount of child support is. But yes, there is a connection, the most basic connection between child custody and child support is to take a look at who has primary physical custody, 40% custody or 50% custody. And when you talk about those percentages, John, you mean overnights, correct? Yeah, that's, that's really the name of the game when it comes to custody. It's not literally the number of hours you're spending with the child, it's overnights. I've had cases actually where depending on the party's work schedules, you know, the gentleman may have been waking the children up, getting them to school, meeting them after school and doing their homework. But if they don't sleep over his residence, they don't have those overnights that we need to count in terms of looking to see who has actual custody of the child. Something you gotta look at. All right, John, let's run through another scenario here. We got mom and dad are separated, and uh, uh, the kids live primarily with mom, and uh, they have a son that's 14 years old, and the 14-year-old son says, Dad, you know, I'm, I'm playing more baseball now, and uh, you know, my sports are, are you know, more important to me in terms of my life. I want to spend more time with you. Okay. When when does a kid get a say in the whole custody uh, arrangement? It's a great question. Um, really, what we should what we should talk about first, very briefly, is that when a judge looks at a custody case, they look at a host of factors. It didn't used to be like that. About ten years ago, it used to be. You threw up the facts to the judge, and the judge took a look at what was in the best interest of the child based upon a totality of the circumstances. What they tried to do was they tried to do factors, and the presumption of the child, just like Skip said, is one of the factors. The case law, the way this has been looked at in the law and decided, asks what is the child's, what is the nature of the child's well-reasoned preference. So Skip gave you a, a great example there. The child goes to the, uh, the, the adult and says, because of this, 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 and this, say, I'd like to spend more time with you, or it's easier for me to be over your house. That could be considered a well-reasoned preference, a good reason to respect a child's wishes and in answer to your question, who maybe is now coming of age, they're 14, they're 15, they can articulate their needs, they're, they're looking at their future, they're looking at what interests them. Um, I wanna spend more time over dad's house because, and this really runs the gamut um, of reasons. Um, so if a child, I mean, I've had cases where the, 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 the child says, I'm 14 years old, um, I'm trying to get into an Ivy League school and I can't get my homework done over at this house because it's a, it's a zoo. I really want to go somewhere where it's quiet or where my friends are or where I have my own room, things like this. The well-reasoned preference of a child is one of the factors that the courts could give heavy weight to. And, and I think that the courts kind of take each kid separately because you can have a 14-year-old that kind of isn't all that articulate and you know wants to go over to dad's because dad said when you get sick to be 16 you get a car uh, or you could have you know a 14 year old that's that's very articulate and says like John said you know there's all little kids running around at mom's house I want to come over to dad's house because it's quieter and I can get my schoolwork done and I want to go to a really good college just realize that uh, two things one that custody is always modifiable like we've talked about and in my experiences I found that you have situations where kids tell dad one thing, mom a second thing, psychologist a third thing, judge a fourth thing, so who knows? So just realize that, that, that 
kid might be saying something to you, but they might be saying something completely different to mom. Right. So uh, uh, just have a heart to heart with your kid if that's the situation. And, you know, if you if you feel like uh, the kid's heart's in the right place and you have the stomach for it, go seek that modification. Let's take the other scenario, John, or the complete opposite, which is that you have a 14-year-old that says, I'm sick of going to dad's house. I don't want to go to dad's house anymore. Uh, uh, I, I want to stay here with mom. Uh, dad did whatever terrible thing that the kid has somehow uh, 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 lodged in their subconscious, and they, they don't want to go to dad. How do courts deal with that situation that borders on what's referred to as parent alienation. Right. Yeah, I mean, even even in the situation where there's a well-reasoned preference, I think a good judge is going to take a look at, you know, what's really going on here? Is this child telling me the truth? Is this something that, that was cooked up? Um, or if I have a child, like Skip said, who says, I don't want to go anymore. Um, why? You know, what is the reason? Certainly the parent, the father, has rights to see his child. Certainly there's a there's a um, something to be said for the fact that this is my child and I want them to come over. But you could be fighting against not only the child at that point, but also uh, the woman and the woman's lawyer, Lord knows. Um, so really, in the case of a preference, in the case of a child saying what they're going to do or what they're not going to do, it's good to really look for those, uh, those parental alienation um, situations. Is this is a child being told this? Is the child being told things about the, the litigation, which they're not supposed to? Is the child being um, hearing the mother disparage the husband every time they walk away or every time they see each other? Um, these are real things that happen. They're leftovers from the dynamic of the relationship that the man and the woman um, had, and they're really, really damaging. Uh, and, and probably in your case, before you go into a judge and you say, she's telling uh, the kid that I'm a dirtbag and all this stuff, you're going to probably need a psychologist to take a look at the situation and find out if this thing's really going on. I find that there's two schools of thought in the court system relative to parental alienation. The overwhelming majority of the courts are going to suggest counseling and try to do everything they can to, uh, to, to, to make sure that that kid has a relationship with that other parent because you know, we're dealing with kids here, we're not dealing with adults, and we want to make sure that they have the availability of both parents in the long-term course of their lives. Now, uh, the other thing, the other school of thought is kind of a little bit more radical, and there's a judge in Montgomery County that uh, John and I both know of, who he will make that kid go, or he's even held kids in contempt. Yes. He's uh, switched custody and flipped the kid from one parent to the other. He's done a lot of uh, seemingly out there things to try to kind of force the relationship on the kid. How all that's going to play out long term, I don't know. But as I said, the, the general view is counseling and try, and if the situation gets really bad, then kind of throw up your hands and go, oh, well, we tried. But on the other hand, it'll be the counseling and then not throw up your hands and just kind of pluck the kid from one situation and put the kid into the other situation. Right. Um, moving on now to uh, child support, and uh, uh, for our listeners, they, we already have a podcast out there that's specific to child support, so I don't want to get into this in, in an amazing amount of detail, but uh, uh, relative to uh, uh, the child support guidelines that John kind of referenced a little while ago, the trick is to get uh, uh, your client, as a lawyer, your client's income as low as possible and the other, the other side's income as high as possible. And... Uh, John, not income can be not just what you earn, but it can also be earning capacity. Tell sure. us a little bit about earning capacity. Yeah, this is going to come into play a lot when um, the person is either unemployed or they worked at one time, um, and there's an argument um, before the court that the person is not making the money that they should be making. I mean, the best way to illustrate this is with a few not-so-hypothetical scenarios. Um, I had a case once where... Um, we were in court for child support, um, and the woman's argument anyway is that this, this person's not making enough money. We're separated now, and our kids should not uh, have to deal with the fact that he decided to become a drummer um, after being a scientist at one of the big pharmaceutical companies for 20 years. He's now, he's now following his life's passion, and he's making $35,000 a year at times, 
and he was making $180,000 before. In that situation, the court could look at the individual and say that your earning capacity, what you should be earning, is the number that we're going to be using for child support. So when they do these guidelines, when they plug in your income, they're not going to plug in $35,000, they're going to plug in $180,000 because that's what you should be making. From, from, the, from the father's rights perspective, what Skip alluded to, and we'll stay with the scenario where the, the woman is the one that's going to be getting the child support. Um, frankly, yes, our job sometimes is to try to get her income as high as possible. And that could be to use the, uh, the earning capacity argument on her. Um, perhaps she has a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, or maybe she was a lawyer, or maybe she sold real estate at one time. Um, and you made a decision as a family that she was going to take a back seat in terms of, in terms of the working, and she was going to stay home with the kids or work part-time or something like that. Now you're split up. And now the person is asking for child support from you. Her earning history, her degrees, her education, um, what she made in the past, um, what her schedule is. Can she go to work? Are the kids in school all day? Why are you not working? These are all the questions that we'll ask on behalf of the father or the man um, to try to use the earning capacity argument as it should be used but in this case against against the woman who's asking for support. Realize that earning capacity is based on the realistic situation at this point in time. So uh, if she's been out of the workforce for 15, 20 years, she's not going to be able to make what she made before. Right. A lot of guys come to me and say, hey, look, my wife was in pharmaceutical sales uh, uh, 20 years ago and she's making $85,000 a year. Well. So therefore, she can go out and make $85,000 a year. Yeah, five years from now, she might be able to make $85,000 a year, but she can't do that now because, as I said, she's been out of the workforce. So just realize that it has to be what the person can make right now, given their current situation. Oh, let's assume for a, 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 or something that I've noticed is that a lot of guys, particularly guys who are self-employed, um, that they... Uh, that they um, that they look at the income on the tax return and says, hey, that's what I have available for, uh, for support. Well, that's not necessarily it. There can be a lot of things added back in, such as, um, uh, uh, such as uh, like if you have a cell phone or depreciation on your, on your, on your work equipment, a lot of that stuff can be uh, added back in. Um, uh, another thing uh, to, uh, to, to pay attention to relative to any sort of a child support or child support order is that uh, 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 we really don't have uh, dependency exemptions anymore under the current tax code, but we do have uh, the tax credit. So uh, uh, make sure that if you're in a, a child support situation that you do, in fact, get uh, uh, a tax credit for at least one of your children, assuming you have more than one. Uh, I've also seen situations where uh, uh, there is no child support order and guy goes over to see his child and the mom says, look, uh, give me $200 if you want to see the child. And he's like, I don't have $200 right now. Uh, it is possible for the guy, the obligor, the guy who would owe child support, to go to the domestic relations office in their respective county and file a child support complaint so that everything is set by the statewide guidelines and it's appropriate number and it's paid through the court system and the guy doesn't have to worry about that harassment every, and every that, so often. And that's not necessarily the reason you would do that so you could get permission to see your children. Those are two separate things, but Skip's right. I mean. If you think you're paying too much or if you think you're not getting credit for it, sometimes as a lawyer we may counsel you to go and file for child support so that you can start paying. Doesn't happen a whole lot, but there are situations where it might be the right thing to do. I've had guys who felt that uh, that you know they, they moved out of the house and they felt the right thing to do was to pay all the bills. And then they come to me and I figure out what the child support guidelines say that they should be paying. They're like, Oh my God, that's thousands of dollars less yeah, yeah. than I'm paying, and they don't want to screw their kids and screw their uh, their their wife and and not pay anything. So uh, I suggest that they go and file for uh, child support and uh, 
uh, and, and have it set by the guidelines. You can establish paternity too by filing. Um, sometimes it's a shortcut to figuring out whether you should be paying anything at all. And, and John, you did a, a podcast earlier on the issue of divorce. And uh, uh, let's touch on that for a little bit now, because sure. uh, this podcast is running a little a little long. Um, I, I find that when when I sit and talk to guys, that that there's kind of a misconception one way or the other. And the one misconception is, oh my God, I'm the guy. I make a lot of money. I got to give her everything, which that's not necessarily the case. Or the other one is, I'm the guy. I busted my butt. I earned everything. She just stayed home. Therefore, I don't owe her anything. <laughs> What's the reality? Neither one of those, I'll tell you that right now. Um, and and uh, in, in the podcast, which we talked about divorce a little bit more, we didn't talk about all these other things, it was really just divorce. What you're going to find is in Pennsylvania, the standard, uh, like in child custody, it was best interest, the standard for figuring out who gets what in Pennsylvania is equitable distribution. They're going to do what's equitable. Perhaps your situation is like one of those traditional family situations where the man made all the money and he has all the retirement and he has all the assets and the wife doesn't have anything. You know, in that situation, you may wind up paying more, um, but it's a case by case basis. The biggest thing that I've seen in 20 years is the situation like the Mr. Mom situation where the man really put his career on hold. Um, and the woman made more, or just the woman's making the same amount as him. It's a two-household, um, two-income household. These are the cases where if, if a settlement can't be reached, the lawyer is going to need to go in and use all the arguments um, available to us to make that situation be not what you think it is, that the man's just going to walk in and have to pay all this money and alimony and everything else like that. It's a case-by-case -case basis. And it's, it's, there's no presumption that the man is the one that's going to get hit the hardest. When we started this, I think one of the things that we were trying to talk about is the deck stacked against guys. It's not necessarily stacked against guys, but it is kind of stacked against the primary wage earner, right. which in most cases is the guy. So that's why, uh, that's why that, that perception is out there. And uh, I think that there's a lot of situations out there, or an increasing number of situations, where the wife is the person that earns the more significant income and the guy is the not the primary wage earner as i said is the more traditional situation and what the pennsylvania equitable distribution situation tries to do is balance the situation over the long term therefore the person who is not uh, earning the more significant income is the person who's going to get more in terms of assets so that they have something to fall back on as their uh, uh, as their life progresses after separation right uh, I, one thing that I wanted to touch on is that there are a lot of guys out there that are small business owners sure. be they either uh, 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 you know a laborer that he's an electrician and he's got a van full of tools and parts and the like, or a guy that owns a, a more significant, uh, uh, a more significant uh, uh, type of a manufacturing business or something like that. Um, anything you can, you have to say for advice for uh, that, that, that type of guy? Sure. Um, the case is always going to be a little bit more complex. This in comparison to somebody that comes in and they get a, a pay statement every two weeks, a pay stub, and they're a W-2 employee. A lot of times it's easy to figure out what they make, what their earning capacity is, how much they've made. But when you have your own business um, and when the marriage breaks up, there's always going to be an allegation that you're hiding money or you're stashing money away or you're paying your expenses through the business or you're not making as much. Um, these are complicated cases. You definitely should not go it alone. Um, and really, what firms like ours do is we bring um, a different set of disciplines to bear on these cases. We have accountants. We have people that can look at your situation and, um, and we can express how your income really is, despite the allegations on the other side. But the small business case or the, the big business case, anybody that's self-employed, always going to be a little bit more challenging um, in the divorce, the child custody, or the child support uh, matter. I think the guys are fearful if they own their own business that they're going to end up with their ex-wife as their business partner. And that's not necessarily true, and no. that, that should be avoided at all costs. Uh, when you're figuring out your divorce, there's 
a list of assets that's going to be out there that's going to have retirement benefits, it's going to have real estate, it's going to have your business, it's going to have all that stuff listed in there. It's like if you want, if you have a lot of equity in your business, uh, it may be that you can't keep the house and the business. It may be that uh, your soon-to-be ex-wife has to get the house to balance out the business. But there is no cut and dry rule that your wife is going to be your partner uh, in your business if she's not going to be your partner in your marriage. Um, John made reference to the fact that uh, uh, we bring in uh, specialized accountants who specialize in, uh, in, in valuing businesses to figure out what that equity is. And in some businesses, it might be that there isn't a lot of equity in there because it's what's called personal goodwill that's personal to the guy that owns the business that people follow him around. They don't follow the business around. And I guess relative to the small business owner, John said about uh, uh, it, it can get kind of involved in trying to figure out what the volume, what the value of that business is, is that uh, just don't drag your feet. I mean, I think us as lawyers, what we want to do is get people through the divorce process as uh, quickly, efficiently in terms of time and in terms of money as possible. And, uh, you know, don't drag your feet. Don't withhold documents. If right. there's a request for documents, you know, have your accountant or your, your, your CFO gather those documents up, have them uh, delivered to, your, to your, uh, your lawyer and have your lawyer look through them and produce them to the other side. Because as I said, is that uh, uh, we want to get you done, we want to get you through this process as, as, as completely uh, and efficiently as possible. What we've said today is pretty much specific to Pennsylvania. John and I both practice in the southeastern portion of the state. But if you are anywhere in Pennsylvania, we're happy to talk to you. Uh, the same laws apply all over Pennsylvania. Uh, John, how can our listeners get in contact with you? Well, um, we our phone number is the easiest way, 610-272-5555. Um, and you can make an appointment with either one of us. Um, we're on the internet and we're on Facebook. If you search our names or you search Weber Gallagher Family Lawyers.com, I believe it is. Um, but we're out there and you can find us if you need us. Right. And uh, if you're looking for me, my uh, phone number is 610. 278-1503. John gave you the general number for the office. My email address is spersick at wglaw.com. And our purpose today was uh, to realize that we, uh, we have empathy for both sides of the equation. It's not like we represent all men or we represent all women. We just wanted to uh, make sure that what we felt was a, uh, an under-identified uh, portion of the family law market. Uh, guys, we want to make sure that we are reaching out to you and we understand you and that uh, uh, we're happy to talk to you and help you with your family law situation. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Let's Talk Family Law. We hope you join us next month for another episode. If you would like to listen to this podcast again, share it with others, or tune into other episodes in the series, please visit our website at www.wglaw.com.